We're picking up this morning with a series that we began a fortnight ago where we're learning together what God's Word teaches about family. And because we want to learn how to live for God with, in the whole of our lives, you know, family is such a fundamental and crucial area that it's a, an area that we don't want to leave untouched. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember the, the somewhat controversial start that we made in this series because we discovered that the life and the teaching of Jesus took the biological family and displaced it from the very center of God's plans for the world. We took some time to notice, first of all, how Jesus supports the biological family. He preaches against divorce. He upholds the rights of vulnerable family members like the old and children. Jesus is clearly pro-family, but maybe not in the way that we'd expect, because whenever you see Jesus teaching as a whole, it's clear that while he supports the biblical family, he's placed it forever under a new family, the family of his followers, the community that we call the church. So the biblical position on the family in general is that the biological family is seen in the greater context of the family of God. Maybe I could illustrate this with a very concrete and a very personal example. Claire is my wife. But first and foremost, she's my sister in Christ. Her relationship with Jesus makes her a daughter of God. My relationship with Jesus makes me a son of God. So my relationship with Claire is fundamentally that of a brother and sister in the family of God. So our connectedness is deeper for that reason than it would be if we were simply a husband and wife. We're a husband and wife who are brother and sister in Jesus Christ. So two weeks ago, we began to think about the family and its place in God's purposes. I promised you then that this morning we would think about singleness. Now, it might be strange in a a four-sermon series on marriage to give a whole week to singleness. In a lot of churches, single people can be seen as somewhat peripheral. The core members of the church are those who belong to families. In these churches, it's assumed that a normal single person is, is drifting towards being married and starting a family. As I was preparing this series, I read in one book of a church that called its adult social ministry pairs and spares. Pairs and spares was the way they talked about married people and singles. This morning, we're going to take, if, if it's true that that is, the church's understanding of single people, we're going to take that assumption and turn it on its head. Because we're going to take Jesus and Paul at their word when both of them say that singleness is in some ways better than marriage. It's a better way of life for Christian people than for marriage. Than marriage. Again, this is controversial stuff as it was a fortnight ago, but actually it's only an outworking of the implications of what we learned together a fortnight ago, that the family of God really is our first family. Both Jesus 
And Paul agreed that singleness is in some ways better than marriage. Now, even in our society where a lot of people aren't married, that would sound quite controversial in, in the context of the church. It sounded much, much more controversial again in Jesus' context. Jesus' society had little or no place for single people. Whenever you read the Old Testament, you discover that pretty much everyone's married. There's no priestly celibacy. You know how there has been through the history of the church. You know how in some denominations, priests are still forbidden to marry. Well, there was never any of that in God's people Israel. Marriage was for everyone. Even Nazarites, these are people who made special holy vows. Even they weren't forbidden from from marrying. Not only was pretty much everybody in Israel married, but for a Hebrew not to be married was a catastrophe. We get some insight into this in the opening verse of Isaiah 4. The prophet in this passage, he's describing the worst kind of judgment that a people could experience. And he describes it in terms of people not being able to marry. He says, in that day, seven women will take hold of one man and will say, we'll eat our own food, we'll provide our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. In Israel, not to be married was a disgrace, a curse. In the Old Testament, to be blessed meant to have big crops, big herds, and a big family. A man or a woman's life simply wasn't complete if they weren't married. Now, why is that? Why is it that the the Old Testament people of God, Israel, were given so relentlessly to marriage? Well, let me point you to a couple of key reasons very quickly. We've already thought about the first of these reasons two weeks ago when we were thinking about family. God, if you remember, at the start of the life of Israel, had promised Abraham that he was going to bless the world in a special way through his family. So biological family became a a symbol and the channel of God's covenant, God's promise to his people. So throughout the the next centuries, the prophets picked up on marriage. It, It became a metaphor for God's relationship with his people. God was was the the groom, uh, and Israel was the not very loyal wife, the wayward wife. So marriage is right at the heart of how God's people thought about their relationship with him. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a couple of the key passages in the Gospels, and we discovered that Jesus challenged all of this. He displaced the biological family at the center of human life. He said that for his disciples, the biological family isn't the be-all and end-all. There's a new first family. It's the family of those who do the will of his Father in heaven. This is the new community that's to have ultimate priority in our lives. So there's one reason for the importance of family in the Old Testament. But there's a second, less well-known and new to us this morning reason why the Jews uh, had this strong view that singleness was wrong. They didn't have a very positive view of the afterlife in the Old Testament. 
And that might surprise us as Christian people living after Christ. We have a very strong view of eternal life that lies ahead, lies ahead for us. But, but the Old Testament people of God didn't share that strong view. Job, for example, doesn't hold out a great hope for his afterlife. In chapter 7, he says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They come to an end without hope. He compares the dead person to a cloud that fades and vanishes. In Psalm 88, the psalmist repeatedly demonstrates that his hope in God is primarily in this life. He laments that he's set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. So for an Old Testament Jew, the richness of life that they wanted to experience with God wasn't something they were waiting for after death. It was in this life. Why have I told you all this? Why is that important? Well, this this understanding of the Jewish view of the afterlife gives us a new understanding of their relentless preoccupation with biological family, marriage, and having kids. For a Jew of that era, the only meaningful way to have a life after death was through your children, through your offspring. Your your kids and your sons in particular carried your family name into the future, and that was the only type of immortality to which you would look forward to. So after a man's death, his family name and everything that's involved with that is taken over by his son, and his son carries all that with him into the future. And that's why, I hope that maybe gives a new insight to you as you read the Old Testament, there was nothing worse in Old Testament Israel than for your family line to be stopped and to be cut off for you not to have any children or not to have any sons, that you wouldn't have somebody who could carry your name and all that goes with it into the future. That was the view until Jesus' time. But again, when Jesus comes, everything changes. For a start, people in Jesus' time were vaguely beginning to understand that resurrection may be a possibility. But with Jesus, all of that became very, very concrete And for the first time, a community of people in Israel began to believe that resurrection was not only a possibility, but that it was their sure inheritance. That anyone who trusted in Jesus, followed him, when they die, would one day rise from the dead. No longer were they looking to offspring to secure their eternal future. They were looking only to Christ. So why is Israel given so relentlessly to marriage? Two reasons. Because they saw it as the vehicle of God's covenant promises, but also because they saw it as their way of ensuring immortality. It's only in this context and now that we can start to look at what Jesus said and what Paul said. Those verses that we read earlier. Turn with me again to Matthew 19. Jesus has been telling his disciples about God's standards for marriage. 
He basically says that when a person is married, they should not divorce. And they're so frightened by Jesus' commands that they say to him in verse 10, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. So Jesus picks up on this subject of not marrying or remaining single. And he says in verse 11, not everyone can accept this word. That is, accept the single life. But only those to whom it's been given. And then he goes on quickly to say some stuff that sounds a bit weird to us. But he talks about three types of eunuchs. That is, men who didn't marry. First, those who were eunuchs because they were born that way. And he's talking probably about people who were born impotent or with no desire to be in a sexual and in a family context. Secondly, he talks about those who've been made that way by men. Now, that was a common enough practice in those days uh, that a, a man would be castrated uh, and that would qualify him for service in certain high positions in the royal court. If you know the early chapters of Acts, you'll know we read there of an Ethiopian eunuch. The third category is probably most interesting to us. Jesus talks about those who have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking here about people who have renounced marriage so that they can give priority to their work in God's kingdom. John the Baptist is one example. Jesus himself is another example. So Jesus begins this discussion of singleness in verse 11. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's given. And he concludes in verse 13 saying, the one who can accept this should accept it. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? To a community who said that there's only one way to live, and that is to be married and to have children, Jesus says no. Jesus says there's another way to live, a way that is equal and sometimes preferable to the life of marriage and having children. Singleness is acceptable. It can be preferable when a person chooses to remain single for the sake of the kingdom of God. Radical stuff again. Friends, Jesus doesn't come to confirm us in our own notions and ideas. He comes to invite us into life in the kingdom of God. Jesus' teaching in this passage isn't a one-off. It seems to have been accepted by the early church. When we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, turn with me quickly, page 1149. We aren't going to look at all at the detail of the discussion, but Paul talks for a, a long time about why a person might or might not marry. But in verse 32, he gives a reason why it's good not to marry. He says, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. Paul recognizes here that a married person has more demands on their time than a single person. Whenever we marry and ever, even more so whenever we have children. 
we take on new responsibilities and new anxieties. I know this in my own life. I've lost count of the number of times in recent years when I've had a phone call, somebody inviting me to come and and to speak at this event or to come and be involved in this group. And I've had to say no because I'm guarding the time that I need to spend with my wife and my children. As a married man and as a father, I don't have the luxury of deciding what I do with, with all of my time. I have to take account of my family. Family does complicate things. And this is the reason why Paul says in this chapter that singleness can sometimes be better. So to summarize Paul's teaching in this chapter and and Jesus' teaching further back, many people will marry, but singleness is accepted. God's people are freed from any notion that they have to marry and that's the only way it must be. God's work in the world isn't limited to biological families. And as we've learned today, our eternal life isn't secured through our offspring. So both Jesus and Paul challenge the notion that a person must marry, and in fact, they give strong validation to the single life lived with vision and with purpose in the kingdom of God. Single people have a wonderful role to play in the kingdom of God. As we spend the last few moments this morning thinking about the implications of all of this for our church family, I want to pause for a moment and recognize the heartache that so often goes with singleness. It's possible that some folks here this morning are single, and to them that feels like a choice. They're happy with that. They're content to be single. But there are other people here who would long for nothing more in their lives than to be in a loving relationship or to be married and even to have children. We have people here this morning who are waiting and have been waiting for what seems like forever to be married. We have people here this morning who are single because they're divorced, because they have been married and no longer are. We have people here this morning who are single because they're married and their marriage partner has died. We have people here who are single for for all of these very difficult reasons and their singleness is a heavy burden that they carry every day of their lives. I want to close by suggesting two ways in which single people in our church will be blessed if we truly live as the people of God, a family of God's people. First of all, single people won't be dishonored in this place. Family life, church family life, won't be structured in such a way that single people are made to feel as though they're peripheral, as though families make up the core of our church as though single people are only here to make up the numbers. 
we won't dishonor single people by treating them as though they're incomplete. In our conversations with them, we won't approach them time and time again, asking them, well, have you found anyone yet? Just this week, I was talking to a a single woman in our congregation who told us of, of the relentlessness with which people threw that question up before her. Well, when are you going to get round to getting yourself a man? We might think that's funny, but it's actually not all that funny if you think about it. It'd be a good thing maybe to drop. It'd be good to find other ways of being funny than that. A person who understands these things And what it is to be part of the family of God would never say that kind of thing. And if we really want to learn to be the family of God in this place, single people won't be dishonored in any of these ways. Secondly, and finally, finally, single people here will be blessed when we learn to share life together with much less awareness of a person's family status. We have thought just a moment ago about the frustration and pain of single people. If you're a single person here this morning, can I remind you of the frustration and pain of married people? Being married is no walk in the park. That's why so many people in our society are giving up and saying, I can't do it anymore, and are separating and being divorced. Both single people and married people need one another. We need to learn to to accept one another, to understand one another, to work together much, much more than we previously have. Let me give you some examples. Make this as concrete as I can. Married couples can soften the, the blow of, of loneliness for single people by, by welcoming them into their home. There's no rule that says that once you're a married couple, you can't invite single people to dinner. It feels like a social rule, but it's nonsense. We can, we can invite whoever we like to dinner. There's no rule that says a, a family with children that's going on a day out to the zoo or to W5 or any of those places we go, there's no rule that says we can't invite a single person who could put up with it to, to come and join us on that kind of a day out and be part of that. What about holidays? Do you know that holidays are the worst time of all for single people? Some of them at this time of the year are staring down the barrel of another summer of trying to find some way of going on holiday that won't only reinforce to them their loneliness. Could a married couple or even a family find themselves willing to include somebody in their family holiday? Because we believe we belong to a family that's greater than just our biological ties. Are these things possible? Of course they are. Let's 
think outside the box on all of this. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ came to set us free, and we we tend to think of him setting us free from sin and death. Jesus came to set us free from living the way everyone else lives, from societal norms. We're allowed to reinvent life because that's what Jesus has done for us. I've just talked about how families might help single people. Single people have been a huge blessing as they've recognized the ways in which they can help us. You know, Claire and I will tell you of people who have come to us and they've recognized the, the, the restricting nature of family life for us where we're trapped at home babysitting our kids. And people have said, listen, we'd love you to have a night out. Go. We'll, we'll come and, and help you look after your children. Single people will be blessed here in our life as a church as as we just forget a little bit about all the usual definitions and boundaries about who's married and who isn't, who's got kids and who hasn't, forget it and begin to share life together in the family of God. I don't have a very interesting conclusion, so let's pray.